Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, summer out of left field. How are you guys doing today? I am well. You am well. (laughs) I am well. (laughs) Good, good. You am well? I am well, too. <laughs> Tim, Tim am well? Tim am well. Well. Tim is... I'm well. He's not even... Remember when we talked about not having a goofy <laughs> intro? <laughs> Listener, it was like, what, 15 seconds ago? This is going to be serious. Horrendous. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Tim did not even give us an eye roll, everybody. He just kept his eyes Which, shut. If you want a horrendous sticker... Oh, yeah. They're available in the bookstore. They're so good. The best part is that now in our group chat that the three of us have, whenever Tim doesn't like something, he just sends us a picture of the sticker and I can hear him saying horrendous. It's, it's really good. Horrendous. So, all right, listeners. So today we're going to have uh, Dr. Little taking us through some material in the book of Exodus. He's going to talk about the burning bush and how that's the main point of that passage. Stop it. But before that, we have some thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about a book. Ooh, that worked good this time. Did Charlie, I sound like Tim when I said that? You were no. I would give you like a six out of ten on the thinking on the similarity scale. scale. Similarity, yeah, similarity scale. Tim scale. Okay, so the book that I am going to talk about here is called "Transforming Worldviews: An Anthropological Understanding of How People Change" by Paul Hebert. I think is how it's pronounced. This is another book that was assigned for one of my doctoral classes, and it's kind of a companion to, we talked about um, pagans and modernism, pagans and modernism? No, pagans and Christians. Pagans and Christians in a city. So many words. Yeah. Modernism is in there somewhere. I don't know. But yeah, so pagans and Christians. And so that was a a big worldview discussion. And then this is kind of following that up. And so what it's doing is the first four or five chapters, it's about analyzing worldview. So trying to create some categorical distinctions and what do most cultures or worldviews have as, as, as a part of their system. So the concept of worldview, characteristics of worldviews, worldviews in human contexts, methods of analyzing worldviews. So it's a very, almost very analytical overview. And then what he starts doing is he starts looking at specific types of so you have uh, small-scale oral societies, the worldviews of small-scale oral cultures. And you have peasant worldviews. And he gets into the modern worldview, and then the worldview of late modernity or post-modernity, and then the post-postmodern or global worldview. And then at the very end, he talks about what would be a biblical worldview. And so what I want to focus on here is first off, I'll just say the chapter on the modern worldview starts on page 141, goes to page 210. It's like 70 pages of analyzing the modern worldview. And I thought it was one of the more thorough pieces on the modern worldview that I have personally read. I'm sure that there are much more robust works out there. That I mean, it's, it's a huge topic. But I thought this was a really good chapter. So if you really want to dive into the modern worldview, Maybe pick this book up. But here's here's why, uh, here's a thought that I want to bring back up. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about some zombies, right? I love brains. Yeah. 
and uh, we're talking about World War Z. Horrendous. And we're trying to analyze and discern the worldviews in that in that book. And Andy asked a question: Why do you think? I'm paraphrasing, but why do you think there's this fascination with horror, with like zombies, vampires, demons, like that type of a thing? And you know, at that point, I I can't remember what I said, but I don't, I don't think I had a good answer. It was like, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Pagans are pagans, right? Pagans gonna peg. Pagans gonna peg. <laughs> so. I think I have a better answer to the question now. And that's from this book. And really analyzing the difference between a modern and a postmodern worldview, I think a book like World War Z or a genre like horror is just the outflow of the predominant worldview. And so analyzing modernity, what is modernity? So we're we're turning away from transcendent reality like there isn't god out there in control of everything we're going to focus our attention squarely on humans the pinnacle of evolution and as humans as long as we study things rationally and empirically we will find the way of progress and as long as we continue to do that we use our scientific method and we progress as generally good humans we will reach utopia and that was a dominant worldview uh, for a couple hundred years there, like enlightenment to the world wars, essentially. But then we have these world wars where people use that progress and that science to industrialize and weaponize the world, and we uh, create genocide. You get to the 1940s, and here is a uh, a, a mass killing of of God's people, Israel. And uh, something that we don't really think about that often, but it actually happened in America much earlier than the 1940s. Uh, the progress of humanity where Europeans come to North America, and uh, it, it's hard to quantify because no one really cared to count, but uh, as, as Europeans, white Europeans came across North America, they did the, the same thing to Native Americans, by the way. It just wasn't Jewish people. Uh, but there's mass genocide of the native peoples of America, which America is anachronistic because, yeah. you know, <clears throat> anyway, we sure. would have to get into yeah. that. Yeah. But uh, natives of this country were the same thing happened. And, and it's because we had weaponized before them. And it's one humanity dominating another. And so progress isn't really happening from a humanistic standpoint. And you come out of the world wars and people are not really vibing with that modern worldview anymore. And so that's where we get to postmodern, where instead of hope and progress in humanity, it's hopeless and everything is going to fail. Eventually, we're going to have chaos and death and everything's going to end. And that's where you get to nihilism, like nothing is, is worth anything. There's no point. And you start thinking about how that idea of like there's no point to life there's no hope everything is going to end in death and chaos how that is kind of reflected in this horror culture it's like or like a, a dystopian or post dystopian type of an idea like everything everyone's going to die and there's like one person left and they're trying to just stay alive uh i, I think i mentioned a while back um cormac mccarthy's book the road 
which uh, played by Viggo Mortensen in the Mm. movie edition. So if you like seeing Lord of the Rings characters and other things, but uh, that fits this genre. Mm -hmm. It's him and his son trying to not get eaten or raped in Mm -hmm. a dystopian culture where everyone has died and he is slowly dying because they can't find enough food and it's cold, it's winter and they can't survive. Like where does that type of idea come from? Well, that thinking is born out of a postmodern worldview. So I just thought that was really interesting. He, he comments not on entertainment really, but he really hits those themes. Uh, Hebert in this book, when he talks about the uh, the postmodern worldview, but I thought as I was reading it, the light bulb kind of clicked on and I was like, this is the answer to the yeah. question that Andy asked. Like, mm-hmm. Why do we have a fascination with this? It's actually, we're entertaining ourselves with what we believe. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's de- deep down how we see life and that's how we captivate ourselves is by like reflecting our own worldview and our entertainment. And so anyway, I thought that was super interesting. I think overall I'd give the book maybe like a five. Hmm. I don't think it's, readily accessible to everyone it's it's that chapter on modernism is long it's hard to get through it's technical and so i just i don't think it's like i'm not saying everyone should go pick this up but if you really like studying worldview this might be something to grab over the summer so anyway what do you guys think about that i just had one well maybe two thoughts one for sure i think it's interesting that you you have this contrast because you're you're pointing out that postmodernism says we die, nothing else. Any meaning in our current world is just what we make of it. It's not that there's an actual order out there. Remember, pre-modernism, the order is transcendent. God or whoever has an order. I'm not saying I think it's whoever. I think it's God. Other people would say other. But then I mean, with modernism, they're saying we can't know God, but we can find the order through our scientific pursuits. And postmodernism is saying, that's all in your head, folks. And so then it's like we don't really know anything and there's nihilism. So it's funny because think of the youth culture today in America where you may have some level of affluence, the first world country element. Here we have enough food. We have enough this. Now, I know people go through hard times. I'm not denying that. But compare that to like a third world country. We're doing great and we can entertain ourselves all the time. But deep, deep inside of a person, they they probably notice a contrast. Like I'm doing all this, but one day I blink out of existence. So I could see where even it's not even like they try to entertain themselves with their worldview. They're just they gravitate toward it because deep down, like this is it. This is what's coming. So that I thought that was fascinating. Well, I think going back to World War Z, what I think is interesting in that book is the answer. We we talked a lot last week about you know where's the hope. You know, and mm-hmm. there really isn't <clears throat> hope in that book. But if there is a hope, it's all of these humans who found a way to persevere. So even the salvation, you know, like you can see me, what I'm doing, I have my hands straight up and down and I'm going to tilt them to the side. Like I'm italicizing the word salvation, Mm -hmm. italicized. The salvation is that humans figure it out. So like, what's the point of World War Z? It's like you have this postmodern idea of like descending into chaos and death. And the hope is go back to modernism. Humans will find a way. And it's just, I have no idea Max Brooks. Like I don't know his background, but you just look at the narrative that he's unfolding for you. And it seems like 
he's very high on humans. Like, let's go back to progress, you know? And um, I'm, I'm assuming, I'd be shocked to find out he's religious at this point because of the way he wrote that book. So anyway, super interesting. His dad is Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks? Like Spaceballs, uh, like a whole bunch of old, old comedies. <laughs> That's his dad. We... Two yeah. points for mentioning Spaceballs on the podcast. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, John Candy, let me tell you. Yeah. He died too young. But no, not really. He probably shouldn't watch that movie. Probably not. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I haven't seen it. You don't worry. There is, okay. Can I just say, there is Exodus. a really funny scene where, because it's, it's a spoof on Star Wars. <laughs> it's not appropriate. But I was unsaved for a great portion of my life. So yep. ignorance of unbelief. So there's a scene where they're spoofing Star Wars and they're looking for, uh, who are they looking for? Han Solo, which is played by uh, someone. Yeah, but it, he, yeah, it's not Han Solo, but it, it's, but they crash on the de- in the desert and it's Darth Pullman. Vader, who's played by honey. I shrunk the kid. Rick who, Moranis. Yeah. Darth dark helmet, dark big helmet. old it's helmet, like a huge black helmet. <laughs> it's way oversized. But so they, they're trying to find him. And he says, uh, is it Rick Moranis his name? Yeah. He's like, comb the desert until you find him. Yeah. Which is like, you know, be very, so then here are these stormtroopers and they have this like <laughs> four or five foot comb, comb and they're literally combing the sand. <laughs> that's a, oh. that's a nice, nice play on word joke there. It is. But it there, is. there's a lot of inappropriate humor in that movie, but I that's... always love the comb the desert until you find him. And they start combing the desert. You know, it's funny. Like it might be worth talking sometime about our entertainment choices when we were younger. Because there's so many movies I've gone back to watch and thought, whoa, man, there is way more. I would not watch that today, but yeah, that's one of those movies. It's there's so many funny parts. and There's so many not good parts. So. 100%. And now I'm going to do a Tim segue. All right, Tim, let's talk about burning bushes. <laughs> you guys. All right. Exodus chapter three. Boy, <clears throat> did God tell Moses to comb the desert until he found the burning bush? Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. (laughs) I didn't know where to go, so I just started reading the text. (laughs) And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. There's the burning bush. And that introduces a discourse between Moses and God. That goes through most of chapter four. And when we think of Moses and we think of the burning bush, we think of the burning bush and we think of take the sandals off of your feet. But actually the focus of the text is really not the burning bush. Uh, You know, the take the sandals off your feet is an important point, but it's one sentence. Uh, As opposed to this discourse where God is calling a man to go and serve him, a man that doesn't want to go. And uh, as we look at this text, I want to highlight the, the responses between Moses and God. And I hope to encourage you from God's word that you might see that uh, 
Well, God's messengers don't necessarily need to be a whole lot. They just need to be drawn out of the water. So, uh, Moses chapter 3, I'm going to continue reading in verse 6. Moreover, God said, the Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And then in verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites. Okay, and a whole bunch of people. Verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of, children of Israel, out of Egypt. And there it is. God says, you're the guy. You're Mr. Drawn Out of the Water. You're, you're going to go and you're going to talk to Pharaoh and you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. So that's the call. That's the mission. God says, I'm going to send you and you're going to do this. Now we have five different responses from Moses. He gives these various and different reasons why he can't go. And then God responds to each of those different reasons. And this is very instructive to us, especially as a messenger of the Lord. Uh, if you're a pastor, uh, if you're looking at being a pastor, understanding your rightful place, or even if you're wondering, you know what, I wonder if God could use me. Well, if you're especially like a high schooler, or even not a high schooler, maybe you're just involved in a, a secular min, uh, job, and you're faithful in your church, and you're wondering, you know, I wonder if God could use me to, to lead a church, to be a pastor, to be a ministry leader. Uh, I would encourage you to pay attention to this passage, because it would be particularly uh, insightful for you. Moses' first reason why he can't go to Egypt is uh, true. It's true. Verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You might be asking that question yourself. Who am I? I can't do this. There's no possible way that I could lead God's people. I couldn't be a pastor. I couldn't be a missionary. I can't do it. And so often our fleshly responses as people like in a church. And even this, I've talked to young men and told them, yes, you can, you can do it. But that's actually not really the right answer. The actual right answer is that you're right, you can't. And look at how God responds to Moses's, uh, Moses's statement saying that I can't do it. God says, so he said, I will certainly be with you. See, Mo uh, God doesn't tell Moses, oh no, Moses, you're really a pretty good guy. I think you'll be able to handle it. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you know what? I'm going to be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt, the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God doesn't say, you know, you're a good guy, you can do it. He says, no, I'm going to be with you. I will empower you to do it. And that's the true response. That's the true response. Now then Moses comes back and he says, Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And, and this then sets God up, where God then speaks for the rest of chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, 22. 14 through 22, God then explains who he is. And that is a second really important component to the call of God. You need to know who it is that's going to empower you, who it is that's going to send you. And, and Moses is like, well, who are you? Who are you, God? 
and God reveals himself in a new way, in a way that he had previously never revealed himself. And that's something as you study through and read through the book of Exodus, God is like uh, a different kind of God in Exodus than he is in Genesis. In Genesis, he's sovereignly working through the nations. He's sovereignly working through kings and princes. He's sovereignly working through droughts and the sin of people. But he's, he's just this providential sovereign God at work to preserve his people and to put them where he wants them to be. That's what God's doing in Genesis. But in Exodus, okay, big difference. God comes down with his finger and he touches Egypt. Is a totally different God. And Moses, in this situation, he doesn't know God in that way yet. He only knows God like as he was in Genesis. He doesn't know the God that comes down with his finger and plagues Egypt. Nobody knew God in that way. So God reveals himself in a totally different way. And if you're looking at the ministry and wondering, hey, I wonder if maybe God could use me, you know, you need to get to know God because he's the one that's going to empower you. He's the one that's going to use you. So Moses gets to know God, and God begins to reveal himself here in verses 14 through 22. Then Moses responds again in chapter 4. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Okay, so that's a legitimate concern too. You might be thinking, you know what? <laughs> Who's going to believe me? <laughs> you know, has God really sent me? And and in this one, it's a little bit of a difference, okay? Because, well, God kind of gives him some miraculous signs. That's going to help the people understand that God has truly sent him. In verse 2, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And God said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. It becomes a snake. And so you're probably familiar with the story. And then you have the leprosy as well. So God gives him these two different signs. Then in verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, then it will be if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry ground. So there's a third sign. But what I wanted to highlight in that section, that interchange that God gives, is you have the believing and you have the listening. If they do not believe, if they do not listen, believing and listening, believing and listening. Okay, and this is that component of belief. Uh, the people have to believe, and you have to believe. Um, and so the, uh, this whole concept of belief is not bereft in the Old Testament. We have belief right here in Exodus chapter 4. So belief, that's the main point here in verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Then in verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before you, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Here we go. We have another reason why Moses says, I can't be the guy. I don't know how to talk. I can't communicate. And at this point, you can almost sense like God getting maybe a little bit impatient with Moses. With Moses. Uh, and then in verse 11, God even is like um, getting a little... Well, I'll just read it. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Okay, what is that? Who has made man's mouth? It's a literary device. It's a rhetorical question. It's kind of like God saying, uh, who made your mouth? Who's the one that allows you and permits you and causes you to be able to speak 
Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? See, so now God is like transitioning and he's using these rhetorical questions and, and he's pushing Moses. Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. And, and so God is the one that empowers God's messenger. He will be the one that will uh, give you the words to say. That, that will, He is the one who will empower you to do the things that you don't think that you can do. Now then in verse 13, we have finally, but he said, this is Moses, but Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Okay, what is Moses doing there? He's saying no, God. He's saying no. Tell someone else to do it. I won't. He's legitimately yeah, rebelling. In a that's sense. exactly it. Okay, do you understand this? I mean, he gives all of these excuses, but then he culminates and says, I don't want to go send someone else. Now, how does God then respond in verse 14? So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Look at this rebellion and God gets mad. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. Don't rebel. When God says to go, you need to go. And even when you sin, even when you fail, this is just an amazing part of God in his mercy. Right there, Moses deserved to get whacked. He's directly rebelling against God. But God, God doesn't do that. He brings somebody else alongside of him, and he empowers him and guides him and directs him and leads him in the way that he should go. And that's the exhortation from uh, Moses and the burning bush. It's really got nothing to do with the burning bush. It's about Moses, a man whom God calls to a specific mission for a specific occasion, a man that doesn't deserve it, a man that can't really do it. He's simply the one that God draws out of the water and then God sends. God empowers, and God works through him. And I would encourage you to think through, could God use you? Could you be his messenger? You don't have to have any great strength, ability. In fact, you need one thing. The main thing is humility. You need to be humble. God can then use you. Consider it. Consider being God's tool, God's messenger. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.